um, must have been on some kind of hallucinogen or LSD or something like that. As I was reading through the things that he was seeing because I, I didn't understand any of the meanings of it. Much of it I still don't understand, uh, but there are deep layers of prophetic meaning here. November the 1st, Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse number 5, it says, From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet had hooves like those of a calf, and shone like burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the beings beside it. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. Verse 10, each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle at the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings, one pair stretched out to touch the wings of the living beings on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. They went in whatever direction the spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. And then uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14, that's from November the 4th, uh, it simply repeats the same vision and the same being or creature that Ezekiel sees in uh, chapter number 10. In verse 14, it says, Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. So we have a creature or four creatures that have uh, uh, these four different faces. And uh, one thing we learn about them, they have four wings and four faces, the face of a human, of a lion, of an ox, and an eagle. And that they move only in the direction that the Spirit chooses and that they always move straight forward. They never back up. They're always moving straight forward. <coughs> and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, this particular vision, what it may represent. And uh, I'd like to teach tonight specifically on the face of a man. From the King James Version, it says the face of a man in this New Living Translation says a human face in the front. But I want to teach about the face of a man. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to study your word and to rejoice together and celebrate your goodness and to fellowship with one another, Lord. I pray, dear God, that you would bless Jesus this ministry and this word. Let us learn from it, but more importantly than just knowledge that we obtain, let us take something from this that we can apply and do something about, Lord God, in this coming week and in the weeks and months to come. In Life Church, I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I trust that uh, many of you have been working or endeavoring or disciplining yourself to take time to pray every day this week and read your Bible because you want to grow spiritually and you want to be in love with Jesus. Amen. Can I get an Amen? Amen. Even if you haven't been doing it, but you're going to do it starting tomorrow, say Amen. Praise the Lord. These four faces on this creature, the face of an eagle, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and a human face, and the uniqueness of this creature includes a, a wheel that uh, it moves about on, and then a wheel within the wheel moves uh, 
kind of counterclockwise direction, first wheel. And it's the spirit, spirit that leads these creatures where they would go, and they direct Ezekiel and so forth, and he is transfixed by them and observes them. And it's these spirit-led and spirit-propelled beings that caught Ezekiel's attention immediately. And uh, these cherubims, or these four creatures, I've looked to see what Bible scholars indicate that they represent or what they are. And uh, uh, mixed reviews, some people don't even want to uh, estimate. But uh, probably the strongest, um, the strongest argument is that these cherubims could represent the church of the living God. Because the church of the living God is the being in this world today that directs people and is led by the Spirit. And so if, in fact, these cherubims represent a typology of the church, uh, then they could show us something about God's vision of the church. And uh, I think that that's a, a, fair, um, a fair assumption or a fair uh, look into Scripture that these could represent the church because they, in fact, are led by the Spirit and always moving forward. And the true church of the living God is not led or directed by programs or any man's personality or by ideas or by the culture or by things that are happening in the world. But the true church is always directed by the Spirit of the living God. Amen? And also the church is always moving forward. The true church is always moving forward. When you look at the armor of the Lord, there is armor of offense. There is armor of defense. There is a breastplate of righteousness. There is a sword of the Spirit. There is the shield of faith. There is the girdle of truth. There is the uh, preparation or the, the shoes or the uh, uh, foot, foot coverings of the gospel and the helmet of salvation. But when you look at the armor of the Spirit, there is no protection for the back. Because those that are led of the Spirit and armed in the Spirit are always moving forward. Amen? And so the church is led by the Spirit, and the church is always moving in a forward direction. Amen? There is no reverse in revival. As the church goes, it moves forward. And whenever a church starts looking back to yesterday and, and uh, simply fondly live, living on the uh, uh, memories of bygone days, uh, then it can no longer be the church. Because the true church is a dynamic institution. The Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Amen? And gates are not offensive weapons. You know that gates don't have swords, and they don't fight, and they don't move. They just try to block what's coming. And hell's only option is to be in a defensive stance and to try to stop the church. But the church that is the church, the real church, the church led by the Spirit, is always moving in a forward direction, amen, and running up the score against the enemy. We already know who wins the battle. It's already shown in Scripture that, that, that we win. Those that are a part of the glorious church, washed in the blood of the Lamb, we're going to be victorious, and Satan can do nothing to stop us. He can only try to block us, but we're going to be victorious in the end. The determine, what, what, what we're determining now is what the score is going to be. We're going to win, but I think it's time for the church to understand. We're led by the Spirit, and we're moving forward to run up the score on the enemy. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Every time we take a soul from the clutches of Satan and see them pray through at an altar and give their life to Jesus, the church is moving forward and the score is changing. Amen? Hallelujah. So the church is led by the Spirit. The church is always moving forward. And God never, never uh, planned for us to just reach a certain point and then stop. To find a, 
comfortable plateau and then just stop there. As a church or as an individual, this is not his plan. I read somewhere that spiritual spiritual growth is likened unto a wife in a newly purchased home. And spiritual growth is a constant process. And the growth of a church is a constant process as well. And the reason they use this likeness, they said, uh, the, the writer that I was reading said, I moved my wife into a new home. And uh, she immediately began the process of remodeling. And he said, we've been living there for 12 years, and she hasn't stopped yet. She's still remodeling, fixing, and changing. And I'm experiencing a little bit of that myself. And probably 10 years from now, I'll still be having the same testimony that a wife in a home is a constant and a continuous process of getting it just like they want. This is the way it is with spiritual growth. You never reach the end. This is the way it is with the church. We never reach the point where we have finally obtained, but we're ever and always moving forward. Amen? Moving beyond. I I heard someone say, and this is such an awesome illustration from the Word of God, we've always been taught and believed that it was God's plan that Abraham be the father of the faith. But there is some subtextual clue that God had a plan before Abraham to use his father, Abraham's father, Terah, I believe his name was, to use his father to be the father of the faithful because Abraham's dad was the one that brought them out of the Ur of the Chaldees. But then he took them to a place called Haran, which if you look on the biblical map is halfway between Ur of the Chaldees in Iraq and the promised land, which is Israel, Jerusalem, Halfway between is a place called Haran. But Terah never became the father of the faithful because he was willing to go to a certain place and stop. But Abraham said, I want to go beyond where I am right now. I want to keep moving forward. And there's something about that spirit that God likes. That's why God's favor is upon life church because there are leaders in this church and there are saints in this church that say, you know, we have a comfortable position, but we're not going to stay there. Absolutely not. God's will is for us to always be moving forward. Amen. And to always be led of the Spirit. These four faces in representation of the church are very interesting. First of all, there is the face of an eagle. And an eagle is the symbol of our great nation. When you see an eagle flying high, high above everything else, it has the quintessential bird's eye view. Because an eagle doesn't look at just the tree, but an eagle has a position where it can see the whole forest. And it has the power because of its height and because of its extreme visual capabilities like an owl and an eagle, which can from incredible heights spy a tiny mouse, field mouse, scurrying across the ground and begin the precision the precision's, uh, downward spiral or downward soar to capture this animal because the most intriguing thing about the eagle other than its ability to fly is its incredible vision. It's incredible eyesight. Uh, And as a church, we have to have the face of an eagle that can see more than just the trees that we're facing today, but possesses the power to obtain vision, which is the ability to see ahead, to see way ahead of everything else. Amen. Praise the Lord. To be able to to envision, receive a vision from God that is more than just the day-to-day mundane fulfillment of, of ministry and obligation, but to see that God is taking the church somewhere. Amen.
The Bible says in Proverbs 29:18 that says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Vision is the word from God. The word from God, where we should be going and where we're going and what plans he has for us. This is the vision. We're not talking about the, the church's ability to see through a human uh, eye, but we're talking about them, their ability to receive vision and prophetic word from the Lord, to move forward and to see the big picture and not just to be stuck uh, in one place but to see that there is a great expanse and a great job and a great future for the church. So the church is to have the face of an eagle. Amen? Praise the Lord. Prophetic foresight and accepting God's mandate and direction and pursuing after it. The church should not lose sight of the forest because of the individual trees. Amen? The church maintained the face of an eagle. But also, you see... In this passage of Scripture, the face of a lion. And uh, everyone knows that the lion is the king of the jungle. He's the top dog. And as such, the lion is afraid of nothing. No matter what, what animal wanders by, while the other animals run away and hide, the lion just sits there and observes it because the lion is king and the lion is bull. You remember the story of the uh, um, Wizard of Oz? Uh, who was it that lacked courage? And so, so ironically, was the lion. He said, something's wrong because I am a lion and I lack courage. Because courage is the quintessential characteristic of a lion. And so he was not up to speed because he had no courage. And the face of a lion representing a church is the fact that a church, as it has vision, it also must possess Boldness. It must step forward with the boldness of a lion. And sometimes though we receive a prophetic word from the Lord and we see the direction and the vision that God has for the church, uh, there is a fear and there is an intimidation about stepping forward into God's promises. But if the church is going to be the church and always be moving forward and always be led of the Spirit, it must have this courage and boldness like that of a lion. And even though it seems impossible, and even though it seems unlikely, and even though it seems like it could never happen, that church moves forward nonetheless. Amen? Satan wants the church to be fearful and intimidated, fearful to go forward and to take risk, desiring to maintain the the status quo and to stay in the comfort zone. Amen. Uh, 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 Satan desires for members of the church uh, to be fearful about sharing their faith and inviting and welcoming someone else uh, to church and to a life in Jesus Christ. Uh, But the early church is our example. The church in the book of Acts continued forward with boldness despite persecution, despite the threat of imprisonment, and despite the threat of death. The early church, the true church, uh, had the boldness of a lie. And if we're going to be an apostolic church, we cannot be afraid. We cannot be intimidated, but we've got to be bold to move forward. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I was blessed to talk to uh, uh, one of my dear friends this week, and uh, he began pastoring a church that had zero members, no building, nothing. Started from scratch. Called a home missions work. Six and a half years ago, he started with nothing. He and his wife. She could play a few, like two songs on the piano, and that was it. And they went and started this church in Texas, uh, in this uh, uh, outskirts of the metropolitan area of Houston, a place called Sugarland. And uh, six and a half years ago, he took this step of faith. And uh, I thought to myself, how would you go and start a church with nobody? How would you go and start a church with no money, with no property, with nothing? 
But he took those steps of faith with boldness, and God has honored it. Amen? God has honored and blessed him. He's preached here before, Brother Turnbow, and, and a couple years ago we sent him an offering from our church to buy chairs for his church. Since then, God has done a miracle for him. And they built a brand-new building on a property last year, and uh, they're getting ready to they, – they were getting ready. They needed to add on space because they had an auditorium and uh, uh, some offices, but they didn't have much Sunday school fa- space, and they were going to add on a wing. But they had uh, borrowed this money, $235,000. He had to borrow in his own name to build this church building, and they needed to build this annex, and he didn't have any money. But on Monday, on Monday – Someone handed him a check for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. One hundred and fifty, which is exactly, exactly what they needed to add the annex on. And so this young man told me we started six and a half years ago. No money, no people. He said Sunday we had ninety. We averaged ninety ninety in our Sunday services. We have a building that's going to be appraised at over a million dollars. We only owe two hundred thirty thousand dollars at it in six and a half years. See, the deal is he moved forward with boldness. And Life Church, we're going to have to take some steps of faith and move forward in boldness if we're going to obtain what God wants us to. It'd be real comfortable just to sit where we are and to stay where we are. But we've been in this building here. How many? It's sixty years. That's long enough, brothers and sisters. That's not the will of God. It's God's will for us to move forward and to move on. Amen? And it takes boldness with the face of a lion. The next was the face of an ox. An ox is a large, imposing animal. An ox is not necessarily beautiful, nor is it desirable. One thing that an ox is, though, is it's very strong. And its purpose and its dedication is for labor. For work. What's a good ox? A good ox is not an ox that can dance real pretty. A good ox is not an ox that can sing like a bird. A good ox is not an ox that can race like a horse. But a good ox is an ox that can grind out a lot of corn or effectively pull a plow. What is, once again, this word quintessential? The quintessential characteristic of a good ox is He can get a lot of work done. He can accomplish a lot. See, in order for the church to be the church and move forward, it's got to be made up of people who are willing to work for the kingdom of God. It can't be made up of people who are slothful, indifferent, and unmotivated. Amen? A church can't be made up of fancy prima donnas who are too good to get their hands dirty and do some work. The church goes forward when it is made up of people who care enough to put their shoulder to the plow. And to work. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Sign of a good church is when there's a job to be done, there's a line of people waiting to do it. Rather than a a line of jobs and looking for people to do it. A growing church and a revival church, a church that's moving forward. Amen? A church that's led by the Spirit is going to have to have the face of an ox as well. It's going to have to have the face of an eagle with vision, leadership projecting, visionary, giving giving direction to the church. It's going to have to have the face of a lion with boldness, but it's also going to have to have the face of an ox, people that are willing to do things that don't get their name in the lights, people that are willing to do the menial things, the things that are not celebrated, 
But let me tell you, if it weren't for the ox in the archaic age, uh, then th- there would be a lot of things that were left undone, and there would be a lot of things that would be left lacking. And uh, in the kingdom of God, there's got to be the face of those that are dependable, amen, those that are willing, those that can be counted on, amen. I've always wondered why there are people whose devotion to their job is up here and their devotion to the kingdom of God in terms of uh, dependability and being, being able to be counted on is down here. A church that is a church that is moving forward is a church where there are members who realize that my dedication and my dependability to the kingdom of God is even more important than my dedication and dependability to my job. Now, don't, don't tell me that a church is going to move forward without it. I've been to some, a lot of some great churches and big churches and powerful churches, and there's a lot of elements that you'll see. Some have this element, some have that element, some are known for the great preaching, some for the great singing, some for this and some for that. But one thing that is universal in all of these great churches is there are a lot of people who are dedicated. Let me say that again. One thing that is universal characteristic in these great, large, and growing churches is that there are a lot of people that are behind the scenes, dedicated to just working and doing things, amen? Running vans and running vacuum cleaners and running ministries and caring for people and working, putting their shoulder to the plow, amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because the face of a church that's moving forward is also the face of an ox. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And finally, the face that I want to focus on for the next 20, 25 minutes is the face of a man, the face of a man or of a human being. This is the fourth face. This is the face of the church that is essential for a church to continue moving forward and to be led by the Spirit. The face of a man represents the human side of the church, the part of the church that has a soft spot for humanity, a part of the church that is concerned for people, that is humane, compassionate. Amen. This face that is concerned, this has to be the face of the church. And as the church, we can sometimes get so busy doing church services and working in the kingdom and pursuing the vision of the church that we forget the whole purpose of the church as human beings and people and being compassionate and having that passion and love for people. We're going to talk about this, but I want you to look in uh, November 4's reading. This is, I believe, Monday's, or Sunday or Monday's reading. November 4, Hebrews chapter 6. This is what got me thinking along these lines, brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. I was blown away by this passage. I underlined it last year when I read it, put notes all over it. But I read it again, and it hit me in the heart again. It says in verse 10, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers, as you still do. We show our love to Him by caring for believers. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain, I want you to look at this sentence and make sure you comprehend everything. I'm a little bit of a grammarian being a former English teacher, 
It says, in order to make certain. What? Do what in order to make certain? Keep caring for other believers in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then, where does then? It reflects back to that same statement. If you keep on caring for other believers, if you keep on loving others, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Notice what the Bible says. It says here, the writer, in all likelihood the Apostle Paul, declares to the Hebrew people, he says, I want you to continue doing what you're doing because you show love to God when you care for other believers. When you have concern for other believers. In other words, when you're not just focused on your own needs and your own issues and your own prayer requests, and you show concern and you help other believers, you are actually showing love to God, number one. And number two, if you continue to show love to other believers and be concerned for other believers, then you're going to see fully accomplished what you want to see accomplished in your life. And if you continue showing love to other believers, then you will not become spiritually dull. You will not become slothful, the King James Version says. You will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Now let me share with you here the context of this passage because it's powerful now. And I could preach right from here, but it gets even more powerful. When you look, when you put this scripture back into the context of Hebrews chapter 6, you realize that there's powerful meaning here. In order to get the context, you jump back to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Because how many realize that the divisions of chapters and verses were not in the original text? Does everybody understand that? Sometimes we start reading a chapter and think, well, it's a brand new thought, brand new book. Well, it may not be a brand new thought. In this case, it's not. Chapter 5 runs right into chapter 6. And some questions that people have about chapter 6 of Hebrews are answered when you look at chapter 5. Of Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 through 14 he says to them you are somewhat spiritually dull and you still need milk I cannot share with you deeper understanding and meat because solid food is only for the mature and I want you to look at verse 14 how it describes those that are mature it says those that are mature are those who are able to discern the difference between right and wrong and live according. This is the apostle's definition of spiritual maturity. You're mature and ready for meat if you're able to tell between right and wrong and live according. You're still a baby if you still have to be spanked all the time. Why do we spank the children? Why do we correct them? Because they don't know that it's wrong to run out into the street. And they don't know that it's wrong to open the door and go walking out into the night as a two-year-old. And they don't know that it's wrong to reach up and grab the stove or to drink things that are or eat things that will be harmful to them. They don't know the difference. They're not mature. They're still drinking milk. But the apostle says when you get mature, you don't have to have somebody over your shoulder breathing down your neck all the time to know what's right and what's wrong. There are some people that want me as pastor to be their babysitter. 
And these are people that have been in church for years. You know, they, they say that if I don't hover over them and always correct them, then I'm not being a good pastor. And my response to them is after, if after seven or eight years in the church, you still need me to hover over you and tell you what to do to know what's right and wrong, you're just being a baby. You don't want to grow up. The reality is you know you're doing wrong when you don't show up to church. But you want me to treat you like a baby. Anybody ever seen that before? Kids that don't want to grow up? Kids that want to stay babies? Kids that want to be treated like babies? And then all of a sudden, turns around, they want to be treated like adults. And the next moment, they want to be treated like babies. I know what I'm talking about. I used to teach eighth graders, amen? They're right in that mix there. I want to be a baby. No, I want to be an adult. Why are you treating me? Oh, I want to be a baby. I didn't forget. I forgot my homework. I didn't do this. And back and forth. Some people spiritually are like that. Oh, why didn't you pick me? Why didn't you give me that responsibility? Why didn't you let me operate in that area of ministry? Why? Uh, I thought you wanted me to treat you like a baby. I thought that's what you were saying when you weren't acting and living according to the way that you ought to, when you weren't doing the things you knew to do. Praise the Lord. Because spiritual maturity is learning right from wrong. Discerning right from wrong. And not just discerning right from wrong, but spiritual maturity is knowing and doing. Everybody say knowing and doing. Knowing is one thing, but doing is a whole lot more. And some people that pretend to be spiritual babies are knowing but not doing. But spiritual maturity is knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. The Apostle Paul says, you're ready for me. You're ready for me to take you on to the next level if you are able to know and do what's right and stay away from what's wrong. Then in chapter 6, understand chapter 5 moves right into chapter 6. He said, now, let's move beyond basic Christian doctrine. And he defines what the basic Christian doctrine is. Repent, faith in Jesus, repentance, and baptisms, plural. What are the plural baptisms? Water baptism and spirit baptism. These are the basic doctrines of Christianity. Repentance, water baptism, spirit baptism, forgiveness of sin, faith in Jesus Christ. He said, let's move beyond that. We've got that established. We understand that. Now let's move on and get some meat. Let's be mature. And then he goes into chapter, verses 4 through 7, which are, create a lot of concerns for people. And they're like, what does this passage of Scripture mean? What, what does this mean? In verses 4 through 7, he says, It is impossible to bring back to repentance one who has tasted of the heavenly gift and who has been enlightened. There remaineth no more repentance for them. And uh, how many have read this scripture before and said, whoa, that's scary? Am I, am I the only one that's read that and said, wow? It says, if I've tasted of the heavenly gift, if I've been in light, and then I turn back, there remaineth no more repentance because I've crucified afresh the Lord. And uh, I looked at this passage, and remember five bleeds right into six. And what it is saying here, remember spiritually mature, this enlightened or tasting of the heavenly gift is in sync with being spiritually mature. What it is saying, when you know what is right and what is wrong, but you choose 
intentionally not to do what's right and what's wrong. See, there's a difference when somebody's a baby or spiritually immature and they fall into a trap or get snagged up. But reprobation is knowing to do right and not doing it right. Is intentionally sinning. Intentionally taking advantage of God's grace and mercy. See the difference? If I stumble, God's grace is there to catch me. If I am mature and know right from wrong and see the stumbling block coming out, and instead of sidestep, jump into the into whatever it was that I should sidestep, then this is where see the, the problem is is not that God doesn't provide any more repentance. The issue is somebody with that mindset is not going to repent. You're with me. That's the dangerous position to get in. I watch people's attitude kind of move that direction and shift that direction. I'm like, boy, that is scary. Because whenever I get the idea that I'm above the law, whenever I get the idea that my way is the best way, and and don't keep that humble spirit before the Lord, then I'm in a dangerous position. But finally, my point for tonight, verses 10 through 12 that we read, do you understand in the context of the passage that's been written? Verses 10 and 12 are some clues of how to survive. Once you've been enlightened, once you've tasted of the heavenly gift, and once you've become spiritually mature. How many are concerned with this passage? I'm concerned with this passage of Scripture because I've tasted the heavenly gift. I've been enlightened about the truth. I know enough about the Bible that I can't pretend anymore that I don't know. Anybody else with me? You know what I'm talking about? I can't pretend like I don't know. And so I'm in a position where I'm responsible for what I know. And so I need to know how to protect myself from becoming one of those that are called the reprobate or becoming one of those people who no longer have repentance available for them. I want to make sure I keep myself protected. This is about those who are spiritually mature that want to stay right with God and stay on fire for God and not become spiritually dull and not stop halfway through the process. If you want to go all the way with God, if you want to stay spiritually keen and alive, the best way to do it is to get your mind off of yourself and your own problems and your own issues and to learn how to love and care for other believers. Loving and caring for other believers is the key as a mature Christian of staying in tune, of staying on fire, amen, of staying enlightened, of staying awake, of staying alert, of sidestepping tragedy, of sidestepping shipwreck, of keeping God's favor and blessing on your life because it keeps your mindset and your attitude right. It causes you to realize all the time, I'm not here for me. I'm here to give Him glory and to reach out to them, amen. Hallelujah. You show your love to God by caring for other believers, by ministering to the saints, I believe it says in the King James Version. Ministering to the saints. This passage of Scripture is not written to a preacher, it's written to people. Ministry. Everybody say ministry. I want you to say these words my ministry. My ministry. No, it's not. Ministry is not something that is exclusive to. The clergy, 
Ministry is not something that's exclusive to a leadership team. Ministry is what it means to be a Christian. Right? Ministry is not preaching and teaching, although preaching and teaching can be. Ministry means, you're going to get this one point, because I've said it at least a hundred times. But ministry is service, serving people. So as your pastor, I minister to you, not by lording over you, but by serving. And how best can I serve the kingdom of God? If I want to be a minister, I've got to find out in my calling, in my position in the church, how can I best serve my brothers and sisters? How can I help them? How can I show love to them? That's what ministry is. Ministry can be cleaning toilets. Ministry can be changing the oil on a church van. Ministry can be picking people up from their house. Ministry can be praying for people in the altar. Ministry can be singing and uh, playing a musical instrument. Ministry can be greeting people as they come through the door or performing the function of an usher. How is that ministry? I never prayed anybody through back there. I usually end up having to chew them out. How is that a ministry? It's a ministry because you're serving the body of Christ and you're serving your brothers and sisters. And God's plan is for us to love brothers and sisters, to love the church. The Bible says in one place, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, because of the love that you have for one another. This is the signature. This is the seal that the world recognizes that you're a child of God. It's because you're as concerned about brothers and sisters in Christ, if not more so than your natural brothers and sisters. You're as concerned for the welfare and health and well-being and survival of your brothers and sisters in Christ as you are about your own health and well-being and survival. Amen. I'm in the book right now. I'm preaching the word of the Lord to you. Ministering to the saints is how we show love to God. We know that worship is one way that we show love to God. We worship the demonstrate or declare our love to God as we sing, as we clap, as we dance before the Lord, as we cry out, spend time in prayer with Him. But we also show love to the Lord by showing love to brothers and sisters. Is that awesome or what? Is that incredible or what? When I try to meet my brother or my sister, when I minister love to my brother my sister, I'm actually showing my love to God. But not only am I showing my love to God, but God says if you do that and if you continue in that mindset, then you're going to go all the way. You're going to complete what has been started. Not only that, but you're not going to fall into the trap of becoming spiritually dull. You know what I mean by spiritually dull? I've been around somebody who's just clueless. It's like things are happening. They have no clue what's going on. Because the lights are on, but nobody's home. I remember, this is a bad example to use, but I'll use it anyway. When I was growing up, uh, my father, brilliant man, great leader. When he came home after a day's work, ready to veg out. And we boys were ready to talk to him and play and everything. And I remember him coming into the house and sitting in the chair, and we would talk to him. I'd ask him something. He'd go, And he was like totally clued out, totally zoned out. What's that, Sister Brown? She's got a comment. 
think it may have something to do with like father, like son. The point is, it's just like clued out to what's going on, zoned out, not tuned in. The problem is there are people that are that way spiritually. Things are going on around them. I mean, there's great opportunities for men, great opportunities to win, great opportunities to be used by God. But they're like a carcass. Like somebody hauled them in, dropped them in a pew. Somebody hauled them in, dropped them in a church. And like, and there's temptation that they're about to stumble. And and God's given them great opportunity. And, and God's about to open doors for the church. And there, there's an opportunity giving. And there's no, they're just clueless to what's going on. They're spiritually dull. The Bible says the best way to keep from stumbling into becoming a spiritually dull idiot, and everybody else around you knows it, but you're clueless, is for you to maintain this tendency to care for other people, be sensitive to other people, to other believers, and say, you know what? They look like they're struggling. I've got to help them. See, the problem is we're so focused on ourselves sometimes that, that, that we, when somebody else gets attention, it's like, oh, what about me? I got my needs. I have needs too. See, that's a person that's going to perish spiritually. But you take somebody who's going through the trial of their life, facing the biggest difficulties they've been but instead of being self-centered, they're still trying to minister to other people. Then you've got somebody that's going to make it all the way. You've got somebody who's showing love to God, and you've got somebody who's not going to become spiritually dull. Amen? One of the greatest things you can do for yourself to perk yourself up is to get your mind off of yourself and begin to think about other people and pray for other people. Quit praying for all these blessings you've been asking for and start praying for your brother. Start praying for your sister. I wonder what would happen if you'd quit praying for a job and start praying for your brother to get a better job. Amen? If you would begin to focus on your brothers and sisters, amen, and the needs in the body of Christ uh, and care and love for brothers and sisters, because guess what? If you get to heaven, you're not getting there by yourself. If you get to heaven, you're not getting there by yourself. You better have somebody helping you, and you better be helping somebody else. Because when we walk through the pearly gates, we may have worked out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we have encouraged one another. We have provoked one another. We have gone together. We have prayed for one another. Hallelujah. And when we walk through the the, the gates of pearl, I want to lay some things at the feet of Jesus. And the only way I can do that is to love people, to love brothers and to love sisters, and to have concern and care for them. Hallelujah. So if you keep on loving others and caring for other believers, you will not only will your hopes come true, but it will also safeguard against becoming spiritually dull and indifferent. A few verses of Scripture to prove this. 1 Corinthians sixteen fifteen. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of a, 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 a chaya. And they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That these people are awesome because they have become addicted to loving the body, caring for brothers. They have to get their fit. They're junkies. Get nervous. They haven't had a chance to share love with another brother or sister. They get nervous if they haven't had a chance to encourage somebody else. It becomes an addiction for them. 
This is the will of God for Life Church. Because if we become the church that God wants us to be, somewhere along the way, we've got to pick up an addiction. And that addiction is for serving brothers and sisters and loving brothers and sisters in Christ and serving the kingdom and loving the kingdom and encouraging the body of Christ. This has to become an addiction for a church. We've got to have the face of a man. We've got to have the face of humanity that loves people and is concerned about individuals. Yeah, we've got a vision and we can see the whole forest. Yeah, we've got boldness to move forward. Yeah, we're going to work hard for the kingdom. But in the meantime, we've got to be looking around with the face of humanity and concern for people who are hurting, people that are struggling, people that need a helping hand and need a word of encouragement. Amen. I'm going to tell you right now, if that's the pastor's responsibility, then this church will never grow above 130 or 140 people. But when that becomes a responsibility of the body of Christ, it is limitless the influence that this church can have in this community and in this area. Hey, pastor, they're struggling. You better talk to them. I'll be there to talk to them, but you need to talk to them. Because God's called you to the ministry of the saints. Hey, pastor, that person, I'm concerned they haven't been to church. I'm concerned, too. You know, if I call them, that's my job, and they know it's my job. But if you call them, it's not your job. You're doing it out the love of your heart. It's going to make a greater impact when the body of Christ functions to love the body of Christ. Amen? Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sins deceit. Something happens when we encourage one another. I like this in Isaiah 58, verses 7 through 8. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wander with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. What you need from God will appear when you take care of the needs of others. Did you get that? What you need from God, healing, prosperity, blessing, will appear. See, the the Lord said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. So that you can be a blessing. And if you need something from God, the first thing that you need to do is look for somebody else that has a need. That's counterintuitive. That's not according to the psychology of the... Uh, of this world that we live in. Amen? The psychology of the world that this live in is a bunch of uh, uh, victims. All victims and all needy and all like, oh, I need this perk and I need this privilege. But the reality is in the kingdom of God, in order for you to prosper, you've got to get rid of a victim mentality and become a servant and serve other people. And when you have a need, meet somebody else's need, and then your healing's coming. When you have a need, meet somebody else's need, and then your blessing is coming. That's how the economy of God works. When we minister to others and serve one another, then God's blessings come. You know what? I just feel this inspiration, and this is going to be crazy coming out of my mouth. But we need a miracle. We need a miracle uh, in order for our church to be built. You know what I, I think we need to do as a church? We need to make a first fruits offering to somebody else instead of Life Church. You know what? Because I believe it works. Because what we need is above what we can do. We need God to step in and help. And in order for God to step in and to help, we've got to take that step of faith and say, let's help somebody, let's meet somebody else's need, and then God's going to step in and help us see our need met. How many believe that? Stay tuned. You'll hear more about that.
Hallelujah. I read this story. It's really interesting. Because not only am I helped by loving and showing love to other believers, concerned for other believers, but it helps them too. Amen? Not only does it keep me spiritually alert, not only does it keep me on God's pathway, my perfection, but it also blesses them. I read this story about a, a pair of twins that were born. A boy and a girl. Have you read it? The boy was perfectly healthy. And the little girl had a heart problem. Born with deficiency in the heart. And so they were twins, somewhat premature. So they were in separate incubators. And the little boy was thriving, doing well. And the little girl's condition deteriorated where it looked like she was not going to survive at all. And there was a nurse who had an idea of where she got it from. And the doctor opposed it. The doctor said, no, let's not do that. She had to push, push, push. So they did. And they put the twins one incubator. Both the same incubator. Like it was before. And they say it was one of the cutest things they'd ever seen in the little boy, knowingly or unknowingly, reached over and pulled his sick little sister into an embrace, put his arm around the child. And they said, inexplicably, the condition of this little girl began to improve. The end result was she survived. And there was a newspaper article that came out that said, rescued by a hug. Rescued by a hug. Let me tell you something. The human face of Life Church includes the hands and feet of hands and feet of Jesus that can reach out and touch, and minister, and care. And if we're just a set of programs, if we're some impersonal, hardened approach to trying to reach the world, we'll never be what God planned for us to be. But if we have compassion and concern, and we possess a willingness to reach out and to touch. And to minister. See, we have people that come here in church on Sunday that don't smell very good. We have people that come in here who don't have a job and who are homeless. You know what? When I see them, I realize that's who Jesus Christ loves. That's who I love. Someone may say, well, there's never going to be any results from that ministry. There's never going to be anybody that will come through this church and become a full-fledged member of this assembly. Well, I beg to differ because I think there will be, first of all. But secondly, if there never was, we're reaching out and touching. That's what God told us to do. Reach out and minister to people. Hallelujah. And it doesn't have to be just hurting and homeless people. But there's hurting people on your workplace. There's hurting people in your neighborhood. There's hurting people. We've got to have a face of humanity, a face of love for people that says, if I can reach out and touch, but not just lost people, but brothers and sisters as well that are gasping for their final breaths. And all they need is a word of encouragement. All they need is a touch. All they need is some love. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that if we want to grow as a church, if we want to thrive as individuals and as the body of Christ, we have got to learn, hallelujah, to care for one another and to love one another and to meet one another's needs. Amen? If you look in the Bible, Galatians 5.13 tells us to serve one another. Romans 15.7 tells us to accept one another. Colossians 3.13 tells us to forgive one another. 
Romans 16, 16 tells us to greet one another. These are some of the one another's in Scripture. Galatians 6 and 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Romans 12 and 10 says, be devoted to one another. 12 and 10 also says, honor one another. Romans 15, 14 says, teach one another. Ephesians 5 and 21 says, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11 says, encourage one another. This is about being the face of a human, the face of a man. Hallelujah. Understand, my brother needs encouragement to grow spiritually, but I also need encouragement to grow spiritually. Point your finger at yourself. Say, I need it. I need it. That's why I cannot be a hermit. I cannot be a solo flight Christian. I need encouragement to grow spiritually. Not because Brother Brown says so, but because the Bible says so. Says Hebrews 10:24. I mentioned it. Let us think of one another and how we can encourage each other to love and do good deeds. Ecclesiastes 4:9. It says two are better off than one. If one of them falls down, the other can help him up. But if someone is alone and falls, it's just too bad because there's no one to help him. Two men can resist an attack that would defeat one man alone. A rope made of three cords is hard to break. I need you and you need me, and we got to be connected together. I can't just come into church and. Spend my time in the assembly and 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 rub shoulders for uh, for an hour on Sunday. Not talk to anybody and walk out and expect to survive spiritually. I probably promise you one thing: I'm not a good enough preacher to keep you on fire for God. Amen. Nobody's a good enough preacher. You need somebody else, and somebody else needs you. And you're showing the love of Jesus when you love somebody else and let them love you. God is calling Life Church into community with one another. I need accountability to grow spiritually. People learn from one another, the Bible says, just as iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27. Hebrews 3.13. Every day, keep encouraging one another so that none of you is hardened, as we read before, by the glamour of sin. Galatians 6, 6 verse 1. Brother, if someone's trapped in some sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Carry each other's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but the Bible says when two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst of them. We've always used that in reference to church. In reference to church. Not that it doesn't mean church, but I don't think that's really what it's referring to. I think it's referring to when two or three bind together, when two or three people get together. God says, I'm in their midst. I'm going to be there. When they pray together and believe God and join faith together, God says, I'm in the midst of them. And there's power when people pray together. The Bible says, whenever two of you on earth agree about anything you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. There is great power when we love one another. When I don't just pray for my own needs, but I pray for your needs and we join together. Amen. There is power when we join together and pray for one another's needs. Hallelujah. Our fellowship is a witness to the world world. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I've got to have brothers and sisters. We've got to be in community together. We've got to be committed to one another in order to survive spiritually. You watch people, they can receive God's spirit, be inspired, excited by what God has done for them. But if they don't get connected, when I say connected, I don't mean attending church on Sunday and maybe Wednesday night. I'm talking about friendships. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about, hey, I've been praying for you. How's it going with such and such situation? Well, how do you know about that? Because I've talked to them. And they've talked. That's what I'm talking about. 
See, it's not God's will for people to be coming into Life Church carrying huge burdens that nobody knows about. Because we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. How can I bear your burden? How can you bear his burden? Unless you know. Unless you are close enough friends and intimate enough to share one another's burdens. See, this is the problem. This is one thing that Life Church leadership team is working on. And God has directed us that Life Church needs environments to create community. Because I love our Wednesday night service. I love worshiping the Lord. I love teaching the Word of God. And no doubt many of you love to receive the Word of the Lord in a teaching format. And there's a place for that. But there is no community being created here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody's facing me. When you're in community, you're facing one another. Nobody knows what she's going through or what he's going through or what he's going through. Maybe I can see it in his eye. Maybe I can see it in his demeanor or expression. But there's no saying, will you pray for me? (laughs) I really have something I'm going through right now, and I need you to encourage me. I need you to help me. I'm struggling with this temptation. I need you to help me. I want you to... uh, I want to be accountable to you. Or, or brother, I'm wanting to read my Bible through this year, but I need somebody to partner with me. and We'll stay after each other, okay? And we're going to work together. This is what I'm talking about. If you commit yourself to loving one another, amen, to loving and caring for one another and ministering and serving one another, then there is a promise in the Word of God that says you're going all the way. I said you are going all the way. This is part of the direction of Life Church. Hallelujah. We want to be in community. We want new people that come into the church to be put into a community group immediately. I watched it. I want you three to stand. Sister Jackie, stand up. Amen. These these five or four. Uh, This quartet of precious people uh, were in a small group that we did in our home last year. And I watched. You guys can testify. How God began to draw you together in bonds of love to encourage one another, to pray for one another. In the midst of that small group, there was a situation in Simon's life where God was delivering him from a lot of addictions in his life. That group was praying for him. When he came back, oh man, we were waiting for him. We were excited. During that time, Jen became a believer in Jesus Christ. She gave her life to the Lord. She was filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. Now she's a zealot. Now she's on fire for God. Sister Jackie was encouraged through some difficult times in her life. I was encouraged. My wife, some, a couple of the others that were in there were encouraged. Uh, you know what? Spiritual growth happens in community. Spiritual growth happens when we're connected to one another. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Why don't we all stand together? Amen. Hallelujah. I'm out of time. I wanted us to break up into groups and pray for one another for a minute. But before we leave, sister, I want you to... Uh, get on the keyboard. We're not going to do this in a real scientific fashion, but I want you to turn around and and just get in little groups of three or four just real quickly. Don't leave anybody out. Just get in groups of three or four. We're just going to pray for one another just for a minute before we leave the house of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. That's good. That's good. Excellent. Okay, here's what we're going to do real quickly. Understand we don't have time for you to give your your life history. But real quickly, I want you to go around the circle one by one. I want you to mention one thing that you would like for this group to pray with you about. Not just tonight, but to take this week 
and to remember you each day in prayer. And then come Sunday and ask you, how's that situation going? Is that getting better? If you have something, I want you to go around the circle and I want you to share with this group of people right now. All right, somebody start. Somebody's got to be a leader and start. Say, I want you to pray. I want you to pray for a situation with my kids. I want you to pray for a situation in my house, in my family, something like that. When you finish sharing your needs, I want you just to begin to pray right now. Pray with with emotion for that person. Pray with love for that individual. Think about their need. And I want you to bear it as if it were your own need. I want you to get under under the shoulder of that burden with them right now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I 
Say, can I get your phone number? I'm going to call you and pray with you this week. If the Spirit leads you to do that, just follow the Holy Ghost. See an opportunity to serve somebody. You're not saying you're better than them. Amen. You're just saying, hey, I want to help. I want to help carry your burden. I, I want you to know I care. I'm concerned. I love you. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We're going to sing this one more time in worship to the Lord. You're dismissed to leave whenever you're ready to go. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord this evening. God bless you so much. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. I love you. I need you to survive. It is His will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need it to survive. I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. I won't harm you. With words from my mouth, I love you, I need you to survive. I pray for you, you pray for me, I love you, I need you to survive.